This is episode 8 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. While I don't explicitly set out to be controversial in angry tech news, I do acknowledge that I'm me, and that brings with it a certain level of controversial statements, which is why I find it funny that the most controversial topic on this show, the one that's generated the most feedback by far, is whether or not to have cat sounds in the show's sweepers, generously provided by my good friend John Fletcher. The results of the informal cat poll are in, and the results are closer than I thought they'd be. You all donated $75 in the name of removing the cats and $92.50 in favor of keeping them. You also gave me a ton of notes and comments on the topic via my email, ryan at angrytechnews.com, my Mastodon handle, sirbemrose at noagendasocial.com, or by pinging me in the No Agenda troll room. The total number of notes was much more lopsided, 16 in favor and 4 against the cats. I want you to know that I read and considered every one of those notes, even the ones that didn't have a donation attached, though, of course, the ones with donations carried more weight. It's just not expected. Ultimately, a decision had to be made. Got to decide one way or the other, yes or no to cat sounds. Well, as you'll see from this episode, I feel like I've dodged the question nicely. From the Meta Zuckerverse department, we start, as always, with Facebook news. Facebook still exists. The company has given no timetable for when this unfortunate tragedy will be remedied. The parent company of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, however, has announced that they have a new name, Meta, officially because Zuckerberg is a huge fan of the Metaverse, the fictional virtual reality created by Neil Stevenson in his 1992 novel Snow Crash but more likely is because he hopes that a name change might make people forget about the constant parade of scandals, both real and whistleblower theater, that keep plaguing the Facebook name. The name is somewhat appropriate, if a bit ominous. Stevenson describes a dystopian corporate-controlled world with a fictional virtual time suck, which replaces many people's real-world identities by an online illusion that they maintain, where people take a drug which hacks their brains through a digital interface, turning it into a catatonic mush, and all of this is controlled by a shady, evil corporate overlord. If you can come up with a better description for Facebook, I'd like to hear it. Other than the part where Facebook is real, of course. Upon the announcement, Neil Stevenson was quick to point out I have nothing to do with anything that Facebook is up to involving the metaverse, other than the obvious fact that they're using a term I coined in Snow Crash. There has been zero communication between me and Facebook and no business relationship. If Zuck wanted a business relationship, I'm sure Stevenson wouldn't mind. But it does seem unlikely, as the company formerly known as Facebook seems to have already stolen everything Stevenson might have offered. According to an unconfirmed rumor from an unnamed source I just made up familiar with the company's renaming committee, The company's first runner-up name was the Umbrella Corporation. From the Bad Politicians Make Bad Laws department, politicians are a hard-working lot. 
It's hard to believe they can find time in their busy schedule of corruption and furthering economic ruin to take a moment to enjoy the view from the Overton window, which in 2021 looks out over a tyrannical authoritarian hellscape where the free market is the enemy and individual rights must be crushed at all costs. It's not hard to understand why politicians might have the impression that the public wants those policies that will result in their lives and livelihood being destroyed. One of the most difficult tasks of any political representative is to find out what their constituents actually want. Enter social media, which on the surface looks exactly like the pulse of the common man or woman or whatever you find in between, but is actually just a soapbox for the most unhinged and least mature of society's members to shout louder than their neighbors. While the most useful members of society are busy doing things like contributing to the economy or raising future generations, the least useful members, heretofore referred to as activists, are posting on social media about one unimportant cause after another, and the politicians are lapping it up. Thus, while there are a great many unforgivable things about being a politician, perhaps you can find it in your heart this one time to forgive them for actually thinking that we want Big Brother to track everything we do, tell us what we can say and think, and to punish us for the merest hint of thought crime. Maybe. The federal government of Australia has released a draft for an online privacy bill that will expand the existing Privacy Act and add a new slate of restrictions to online platform organizations. The organizations impacted will include data brokerage platforms, large online platforms, and any company that provides social media services. The draft gives examples of social media services such as social networking platforms like Facebook, dating applications such as Bumble, online content services such as OnlyFans, online blogging or forum sites such as Reddit, gaming platforms that operate in a model which enables end users to interact with other end users, such as multiplayer online games with chat functionality. You could just say Xbox here, guys, whatever. Or online messaging and video conferencing platforms such as WhatsApp and Zoom. Note that every example here is a giant international mega corporation, but nothing in the proposal specifies that a social media platform must be large. An assumed lack of enforcement is all that would save smaller social networks or forums such as Rumble, Mastodon, the No Agenda Troll Room, or your favorite anime-themed PHPBB from having to comply with these same regulations. Large online platforms is a bit better defined as a platform with 2.5 million end users in Australia, and they specifically list Apple, Google, Amazon, and Spotify. Any company on the list that I just gave you will be subject to new rules about how they interact with users. There's a lot of boilerplate about how they want to protect children, doesn't all legislation. To that end, platforms must take reasonable steps to verify the age of individuals. What's reasonable? Glad you asked. Social media platforms have been asking people to pinky swear on a checkbox during account creation that they absolutely most definitely are over 13 years old, for real, not a joke. And that's good enough to keep the honest ones out, but as we know, people will lie. In China, social media platforms require that you provide ID during account creation, which can be checked against a government database. Is that what Australia considers reasonable, the Australian government? By the way, that's not 100% either. People borrow each other's IDs all the time. Regardless of how they do it, if the platform determines that you're a child, they must obtain a parental consent for all personal information and must ensure that collecting and selling the data is fair and reasonable with, I'm not making this up, with the best interests of the child being the primary consideration when determining what is fair and reasonable. If I don't trust the government one inch to determine what is fair and reasonable for my children, do you think I'm going to trust Facebook or Amazon or Google to know what's fair and reasonable? Another requirement, 
is that if an individual requests, doesn't specify how you request, that the company must take such steps as are reasonable in the circumstances to not use or disclose, nor to not further use or disclose. And this stuff is hard to read, sorry. Or to not further use or disclose an individual's personal information. Well, this does sound like a lot like the GDPR's right of erasure. If you like that rule in the EU, and a lot of European citizens do, you might be tempted to like this one too. Except that the very next sentence in the proposal is, this requirement is not intended to amount to a right of erasure of the personal information. I'm guessing because they had some corporation contributing to the legislation that didn't like it. It's unclear exactly what the legislation is intended to be, though. According to the 23-page summary PDF released by the Australian government, the goal of the bill is to enhance privacy protections, particularly in the online sphere, without unduly impeding innovation within the digital economy. Of course, as with all sweeping regulations instituted by government nannies with an overdeveloped sense of moral outrage and an underdeveloped understanding of how markets work, In order to force a market in a direction that most of its players don't want to go, the actual result will be to suffocate all of the startups and smaller players in red tape, while the huge players with a dedicated department of putting up with government meddling will weather the storm just fine. As a result, the big companies like Facebook and Amazon will come out of this with no competition and carte blanche to do whatever they want. And you can be sure that Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg know this very well. The government of the United Kingdom also has a draft on bill on privacy which is eerily similar to the Australia proposal, although much more ominously named. The online safety bill is close to becoming law in the UK. It features many of the same tropes, creating unreasonably high identity verification requirements, holding websites responsible for what their users do, and establishing strong data protection that lasts only until you turn 18. The EU commerce, the EU e-commerce directive based loosely on America's Section 230, prevented the UK government from imposing liability on a site operator as long as they didn't know what was happening, with the caveat that the site must remove any content as soon as they become aware. But that EU law no longer applies post-Brexit, hence this new law, which does exactly the opposite of Section 230. The online safety bill would make an online platform jointly responsible, along with the poster of the content, for anything posted that is... Underage exposure to content which gives rise to a foreseeable risk of psychological and physical harm to children, such as pornography and violent content. Anything illegal? Or any content that, although, it, although legal, is considered harmful to children or adults. Furthermore, platforms are now responsible for doing periodic risk assessment and reporting to the government for any of the above. If the third bullet point that I just read isn't a huge red flag to you, I'd like you to pause this podcast so you can go back 30 seconds and listen to it again. They want to punish people for content that, although legal, is considered harmful to children or adults. Considered by whom? The bureaucrats? By your neighbor, Karen? This is, this like cancel culture from which it is born, is the polar opposite of the rule of law. When rules are enforced but not written down, it is done precisely so that they can be applied selectively only to, quote, bad people, as determined by the people doing the enforcing. The UK government admits in the bill summary that things like bullying or disinformation are not illegal, but still wants to punish people when it happens, effectively making it illegal without calling it illegal. I can't presently think of a more dystopian concept outside of the fiction of George Orwell. 
One interesting caveat is when the higher standard of safety for children applies. The phrase is, if the site can be accessed by children, not if it is accessed by children or only in the case of child accounts. As written, if it is possible for a child to hack their way into your site, then your site must comply with all the safety duties for child protection for all accounts. This appears to be a way of mandating Chinese-style age verification technologies without actually mandating them. Thus, by trying to strengthen privacy requirements, the identity verification requirements will provide online platforms with new and even more invasive ways to violate your privacy. The irony is delicious. The new law does provide some exemptions. Email, SMS, live audio, paid ads, paid ads, comments, and reviews are not covered by this law. Certain providers are also exempt no matter what they publish, such as government providers or anything from, quote, recognized news publishers. By the way, that doesn't include your blog. Ultimately, both of these laws constitute an admission of defeat by the nanny states of Australia and the UK, who have realized that they can't censor anything they want because the free market keeps routing around them. So they're putting the screws to online platforms to do their censorship dirty work for them. Like most attempts at heavy-handed government action, it won't work, but it will cause a lot of suffering on the way to not working. I'll leave off this segment with a little bit of good news on the privacy front. Maybe it's good. Brazil's Senate has passed a proposal for a constitutional amendment which adds personal data protection to its list of fundamental rights and guarantees. As a noble gesture, this gets high marks, but as a political move, it's even better. The proposal establishes that the federal government is solely responsible for the organization and supervision of the protection and processing of personal data and has exclusivity in terms of legislation, meaning that this is a centralization of power away from local jurisdictions and private companies. And though the current proposal doesn't have any specific details about it, could easily lead to the creation of a centralized government-run databases being stored in Brasilia rather than Silicon Valley. So maybe it's not good news. For a sneak peek and how well this usually works out, please go back and review the story about Argentina in last week's Angry Tech News number seven. From the something for almost nothing department, e-commerce site Ozon.ru, often called the Amazon.com of Russia, is experiencing the pain of bugs in production code. The bug in this case appeared in their code, which sets monthly promotional discounts. And on the night of November 1st, more than 100 products went on sale at a price of about 2% of the intended sale price. For example, a robotic vacuum cleaner, usually selling for 36,000 rubles, went on sale for 2,000. An orthopedic pillow was listed at 73 rubles, which is about $1 US. And as soon as those products went on sale, the automated system immediately started emailing users about these fantastic bargains who responded by buying every item within the stock within hours, much to the dismay of the third-party sellers offering them. Ozon assures us that they have fixed the bug and that they will be refunding any orders that were placed at the wrong price and that they will not be shipping out any items at the erroneous prices. And if you're a consumer who bought one of these buggy deals and thinks that this kind of bait and switch should be illegal and that Ozon should be legally required to honor their erroneous prices, I remind you that this is Russia, which has no such laws, but nice try anyway. Now go pay the legitimate price, you greedy mooch. And from the not your tube department, corporate spats never work out for the customer. Whenever some cable TV network gets in a pissing match with a cable company, 
or a mobile operator with a mobile carrier, it usually starts with one side asking for more money and ends with both companies taking turns harming their mutual customers and blaming it on the other until one side relents. Google is currently having a spat with Roku. The issue, as Roku tells it, is that Google wants better positioning inside the Roku app, and by extension, inside the fertile advertising ground of Roku's customers' minds, and has, among other things, demanded that Roku favor YouTube in its app search results and that Google get access to on-device analytics that no other Roku partner gets. Google calls these accusations baseless, although last week Roku released some 2019 emails which seem to show there's definitely a base here somewhere. According to a Google exec, YouTube's position is a dedicated shelf for YT search results is a must. This last April, the spat spilled out over onto users when Roku removed the YouTube TV app from its app store. Unless the two companies can see an agreement, then the regular YouTube app will also be removed on December 9th. The good news is that if you have the YouTube app already installed, it won't be stripped off of your device as long as you never remove it or wipe your Roku device. So if you have a Roku, and want to be able to watch YouTube videos, make sure to install it before that deadline. Or wait and trust that the greedy corporations will come to some kind of deal. You never know. It could happen. <laughs> Maybe I should apologize for the level of political commentary in this episode. Normally, I try to keep the tech side of the news to stay in my lane and avoid straying into silly partisan arguments like whether or not we should all become economic slaves to the wealthy elite. But sometimes the politics strays outside of its lane and craps all over the tech side of the news. Also, coincidentally, today is election day here in the United States. On my ballot, I was asked to vote for mayor and city council of my city. It is a heated race between the big government Democrat who wants to raise taxes and continue the unconstitutional lockdown of the city until every molecule of cold virus has been eradicated from our lives. And the big government Democrat who wants to raise taxes so we can all stop using energy and revert back into the Bronze Age in the hopes that it will somehow change the weather by half a degree Celsius. I filled out my ballot like a good citizen and dropped it in the mail. Washington State has been all mail-in ballots for years. That ballot will eventually make it to a smoky counting room behind closed doors where, I assume, it will be immediately discarded and a vote for Joe Biden recorded in its place. Some people call me cynical. What I'm never cynical about is this show's producers. A huge thanks this week to Brian Janak, Stefan Calloway, Sir Spencer and Dame Lorian of the Bowl After Bowl podcast, Donald DeHart, Brennan Kidwell, Brian Mosier, and David Medis of Medis Media for producing this episode of Angry Tech News. Angry Tech News is released on the value for value model. We don't take advertising and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. So if you got value out of listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send what you think this show has been worth to you, be it $5, $25, or $500. And if you didn't listen to my appearance on the Bowl After Bowl podcast this last week, Sir Spencer has been browbeating me into getting a podcasting 2.0 lightning node set up. And I assure you that is coming soon, just as soon as I find time to become motivated. That's it for me. My name is Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose, at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry.